Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Before we start, I want to say that I am quite glad that the SpaceX spacecraft has splashed down safely and the two astronauts are home and are safe and that we have finally gotten people back into space on our own volition. Uh, But I will note, I still dislike both Elon Musk and the privatization of space exploration, but credit where credit is due. Um, I think that it's really important for us to be able to do that sort of thing on our own, uh, given the geopolitical situation in the world. It's good that we're able to conduct that kind of research without the requirements of any kind of foreign government, even if we have had a good relationship with Roscosmos in the past, uh, as that weird incident about the International Space Station uh, reminds us from um, a couple years ago where they uh, basically accused the Americans of drilling a hole uh, in the space station to uh, sabotage the Russians. It's good to be able to do it ourselves. <laughs> so um, again, credit where credit is due. Okay. So we are going to start tonight with a belated birthday shout out to Marie Tharp. July 30th was the 100th anniversary of her birth. Now, if you don't recall, Marie Tharp was a geologist and oceanographer whose maps were instrumental in lending evidence and garnering support for the theory of plate tectonics. Tharp hand drew our first real maps of the Atlantic seafloor. Her drawings were the first to show the Mid-Atlantic Ridge where the seafloor is spreading apart. Now, at first, people thought she had simply made an error because it was common knowledge that the seafloor was fat, flat, and featureless. Her colleague, Bruce Heason, called it girl talk. (laughs) Um, And so the way she actually did this was that she was given these strips of soundings from um, vessels that had been surveying the ocean floor and she had to interpret those strips of uh, terrain soundings onto an actual topographical map. So it was very cool and very interesting um, and you can see pictures from her um archival pictures of her doing this, and it's just absolutely fascinating. Now, another research assistant, because of course, since this was uh, the 50s, she was actually only a research assistant for Heason, not a partner of Heason. Uh, So another research assistant was plotting locations of earthquake epicenters on a map of the same size and scale. And so when they compared the two maps, they found that the earthquake epicenters fell within the confines of the Rift Valley that she had discovered. So this was actually a key finding, which helped to bring together the idea of plate tectonics, as it suggested that there was movement in the rift, and that therefore the continents might be drifting apart at this um, 
point in the seafloor. Now, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Heezen was the one who was the senior member of the team. Uh, so he was largely given credit for the discovery uh, as a newly minted PhD, with Tharp, again, just considered his assistant. Now, interestingly, Tharp basically said she wasn't really that interested in the limelight. Um, she basically acknowledged that it wasn't for her. And so, unfortunately, she didn't really push very hard for her own recognition, which, I mean, obviously that was in her purview. Um, you know, no one should be forced into the limelight if they don't want it. Um, but it does make it unfortunate because she was such a amazing and inspirational person that uh, it's very upsetting that she's not more well-known. Um, and so my favorite story about this saga, and I apologize to, to those of you who have already heard this from me or already knew it, but it is my favorite story of all time, or at least one of them, is the fact that Jacques Cousteau uh, tried to make it his mission to debunk Tharp's findings. He was just completely convinced that she was wrong and had done something wrong. And so he actually took his research vessel, the uh, Calypso, and crossed the Mid-Atlantic Ridge dragging a video camera. There's truth to the old cliche that a picture is worth a thousand words and that seeing is believing, Tharp observed in a 1999 retrospective essay. Um, so yeah, Cousteau had to uh, eat his words. Um, and so, yeah, he had even um, at one point during that um, during that mission, he actually had put her map up in the mess hall as like a joke. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> and as I mentioned, Tharp's contributions should be as famous as those of other trailblazing women. But of course, she is just another in a long line of women whose work has been overshadowed by their male counterparts. She did receive, however, along with Heezen posthumously, the Hubbard Medal, which is the National Geographic Society's highest honor, joining such amazing women as Mary Leakey, Jane Goodall, and Sylvia Alice Earle, the first female chief scientist of the U.S. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And so... This leads us nicely into today's first research story. But have no fear, we'll come back later to the theme of women underestimated. Researchers have found a way to improve LIDAR readings of the ocean in order to detect algae and measure key properties using this laser light method. Writing in applied optics, they were able to use LIDAR to collect the measures to collect measures much deeper than they had typically been possible using satellites. Traditional satellite remote sensing approaches can collect a wide range of information about the upper ocean, but satellites typically can't see deeper than the top five or 10 meters of the sea, said Barney Balch, a senior research scientist at Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences and an author of the paper. Harnessing a tool that lets us look so much deeper into the ocean is like having a new set of eyes. 
Now, LiDAR uses laser light to measure information from the seawater in a way similar to, say, echolocation. Laser pulses are sent out, and the time they take to return to the sensor allows researchers to know if they've hit reflective particles like algae in the water. Scientists from Old Dominion University and Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences conducting the research in 2018 using a shipboard LIDAR system to detect algae and learn about the deep ocean. The LIDAR approach has the potential to fill some important gaps in our ability to measure ocean biology from space, said lead author Brian Collister, a PhD student at Old Dominion University. This technique will shed new light on the distribution of biology in the upper oceans and allow us to better understand their role in Earth's climate. Now, the researchers conducted the cruise in the Gulf of Maine and detected and measured particles of the mineral calcium carbonate in order to gather information about a bloom of coccolithophores. Now, these algae are clad in calcium carbonate plates, which are as you might know, white. Um, they are, you know, largely responsible for, uh, they're the ones that end up being crushed and uh, turned into chalk. Um, and so uh, they're white and they're quite reflective. And they actually scatter light in a unique way. And so they actually change the orientation of the light waves, which makes it easier to train the LIDAR system to identify them. Balch's research team has been active in the Gulf of Maine for over 20 years as part of the Gulf of Maine North Atlantic Time Series. Now, they were instrumental in helping the researchers test the system. It turns out that they were able to identify the largest bloom of coccolithophores in the region in 30 years. This cruise allowed us an ideal opportunity to try the LIDAR systems out with the ability to sample the water and know exactly what species were in it, Bach said. LIDAR has been used in the ocean for decades, but few, if any, studies have been done inside a confirmed coccolithophore bloom, which profoundly changes how light behaves in the environment. Now, though tiny, coccolithophores are actually an extremely important part of the world's ocean ecosystem. They control or are uh, instrumental in um, influencing much of the biochemical cycles that shape the planet because of that carbon that they have in them. Um, sorry, the calcium carbonate um, that they have in them. And so studying them is key to deciphering global ocean dynamics. But traditional methods of study require costly stops to collect water for samples uh, in order to do a survey of the populations of the coccolithophores in the area. The LIDAR rig, on the other hand, could potentially allow researchers to estimate populations without having to stop the ship, which would save time and money because, of course, if there's one thing that we know about doing ocean research is that it's costly, unfortunately. Um, and so that's a big problem with why uh, we sometimes, I think, don't see as much of it, because I think that um, there is definitely an issue with 
the ability for people to raise funds to do ocean research because, of course, as I am constantly lamenting, it seems like people are much more interested in space than they are in the oceans. Um, and of course, that is a, a soapbox that I am never going to leave uh, unless we suddenly decide that we understand now that the oceans are very important and we should probably be researching them more than we have been in the past. Um, that is the only way that you're going to get me off this soapbox, I fear. So uh, please do bear with me as I continue to uh, be very adamant about the idea that the oceans are very important and we should be studying them more. Um, as you probably know, we know so little about the ocean compared to uh, the land on this planet. And there are still places on the actual surface of the earth where humans have never been and don't really know what's going on in. Um, and so even though two thirds of the planet is covered in ocean, we know so little about it, which is a problem because we know one of the things we do know is that the ocean is extremely important to life on earth. And we don't know what's going to happen with the changes that are being made to it based on human activity at the moment. And so it's very frustrating. Um, I think that we're really having issues and we just don't know enough um, because of this problem with being able to do research on the ocean, which is why we should be having a large project like NASA devoted specifically to the oceans in a way that NOAA just isn't right now. Um, you know, they do great work, they're doing great research, but they just are not funded in the same way as NASA is. And that makes me sad. <laughs> as you probably know, if you've listened to this show ever before. <laughs> okay, so let us get back and start to um, talk about um, actually, to go back to this story, sorry. Um, so the researchers actually also tested the LIDAR in the Sargasso Sea, uh, which is very clear, uh, actually, and pretty calm. So there's a whole thing about the Sargasso Sea being very calm. Um, and they also tested it in the waters off the coast of New York City, which are not calm <laughs> and which are quite turbid, uh, which means that there's a lot of sediment in them. And so there's a lot of built up uh, stuff in the water that makes it potentially harder to see. Uh, but they found that the um, process worked across these diverse environments. It's a huge deal that we are learning to reliably identify particles in the ocean from a LIDAR system positioned above the water, said Richard Zimmerman, a study author and professor at Old Dominion University. This is a significant advance, and it could revolutionize our ability to characterize and model marine systems, marine ecosystems, excuse me. So that is, again, very exciting um, because we really need to be able to do that better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the ocean. So now let's talk about geology. 
And so we are going to talk actually about the opposite geological force. Uh, so Rhea Tharp found C4 spreading. So instead, we're going to talk about subduction. And so subduction is one where one plate is pushed beneath and under another plate and plunges down towards the mantle where it is uh, basically liquefied and recycled into that molten layer below the crust. Um, so into that uh, layer in the mantle that is uh, basically kind of um, the rock there is more like putty than really liquid. Um, so uh, it's not quite liquid. So it's a little bit hard to, uh, <laughs> I think putty is probably the best way to explain it. And so again, while we might think that plate tectonics is well understood, um, you know, to me, plate tectonics seemed like something that made complete sense and seemed like well-settled science. But it turns out, as we know from Maria Tharp, that it is a much younger science than we might otherwise think. So this was only happening, um, I think I didn't say specifically, but um, Maria Tharp's maps were from the mid-50s. And so um, not from the 1800s, as one would have thought. Uh, and in fact, uh, if we were doing the whole story about plate tectonics, there was a scientist um, many, many years before um, Maria Tharp's work who basically proposed plate tectonics and became a laughingstock um, because science is not always uh, great at revolutionary ideas. That is obviously a truth. But if something is true, it will eventually come around and be accepted as long as people continue to pursue the, those lines of evidence. Okay, so there are still obviously a lot of unanswered questions. And so a new interdisciplinary study has tried to answer several questions about subduction. They note, subduction is the primary driver of plate tectonics on Earth. However, despite numerous advances since the theory of plate tectonics was established, the mechanisms of subduction zone initiation remain highly controversial. While subduction zone initiation, or SZI, is particularly important in maintaining plate tectonics, the processes leading to new subduction zones remain poorly understood. This is in part due to the fundamental differences between the dynamics of individual subduction zone initiation events, but also to incomplete or missing and geographically discontinuous geologic evidence, as well as the long timescales and the numerous physical processes involved in forming new convergent plate boundaries. Now, that's a lot. <laughs> but basically, what they're saying there is that it's hard to tell what's going on because in large part, when you have that subduction event happening, a lot of the rock that would tell you what's going on is actually literally being pushed into the mantle and being turned into something else, um, turned back into molten rock, which is not uh, no longer available for study. And then also, if you have old subduction zones, 
several other geologic processes like weathering and metamorphosis happen. And so you lose information about these old um, faults. And also you can just have faults that have been ripped apart or have been moved by later uh, plate tectonics. And so you don't have the information there to look at anymore. And so basically uh, chemical weathering, uh, weathering by weather um, and things like that can also just erase a lot of the evidence. So the study is co-authored by Dr. Caroline Eakin from the Australian National University and Fabio Cramery of the Center for Earth Evolution and Dynamics at the University of Oslo in Norway, which actually sponsored this um, plan to, um, it actually sponsored this interdisciplinary uh, kind of work, which they then used to do this particular uh, study. And so the team consisted of 14 early career researchers from around the world. Now we've been able to compile 100 million years of existing evidence for subduction zone initiation. One of the biggest things this showed was that subduction breeds subduction. Truly spontaneous subduction in, quote, pristine places is practically unheard of, uh, notes Eakin. And so the new SZI database is now open for other members of the geological and scientific community. And actually for uh, anyone, there's actually, um, I think it's just uh, subductionzoneinitiation.org, maybe. I can um, try and find out what it is, but you can also just Google uh, Caroline Eakin and subduction zone and you'll find it. So you can just go there, click it open and look at the data that they've put in there. So I think that's really cool that it's very much an open access um, database that is there for people to be able to do further research as well as uh, the research that they actually did while they were compiling the database. And so in order to compile the database, the researchers used evidence from a wide variety of sources, such as field observations, analytical results, geophysical data, constraints from paleogeographic reconstructions, and the findings of comparative modeling. And so basically they used a combination of real world evidence and evidence from um, modeling. So all sorts of different kinds of uh, computer models. And so they note that by looking at multiple events, we found SZI clustering around two time periods, six to 16 million years ago and 40 to 55 million years ago, Dr. Eakin said. Going forward, ANU researchers will also be deploying ocean bottom seismometers around Macquarie Island, a location chosen due to its potential for, further, for future subduction zone initiation. So that is very cool. And hopefully we will learn more about this really important process because um, obviously it's a pretty important process that happens um, all across the uh, world and is, for instance, happening um, off the coast of California, 
Um, and so all of the Ring of Fire, that's all subduction zones. Um, so the so basically you have the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is pushing apart, and then you have the uh, area of the Indian Ocean, which is all subduction zones. So all of those, one plate is moving over, the other plate is being pushed under. Um, and so you get the very different kinds of um, zones there. So the subduction zones are obviously much more um, volcanically active when on the earth, um, on land, I should say. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting and it's important to know things about, you know, the basics of how our planet actually functions. <laughs> Um, it's still just so wild to me that uh, it took so long for plate tectonics to be accepted, um, especially if you look at, for instance, the whole issue with like the way that South America clearly fits into Africa. And by like the 19th century, we knew this. Um, and so it's really funny that it took so long to be accepted. But, you know, scientists are people just like everybody else and they can have their weird hangups. And uh, this was apparently one of them. Um, all right. We're going to take a break for a few minutes and do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we are going to circle back to our last Marie Tharp theme, which is, of course, underestimating women. So please do come back for that. <laughs> uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. This is Evidence-Based Radio. And so, again, we are going to circle back to that last theme. 
And so a new study highlighted in the journal Sapiens of the Diplion amphora and other pottery from the so-called Diplion master from the early Iron Age in Greece suggests that the potter was most likely a woman and not a man as usually suggested. So um, just as an aside, Diplon, um, Diplion is actually the name of the cemetery gate uh, near where the amphorae was found. So we don't actually know anything about the potter themselves in terms of what they uh, called themselves or anything like that. Um, and so that's just something that has been given to them based on this modern day um, uh, nomenclature. Okay, but anyways, let's talk about it. <laughs> and so the amphora is roughly five feet tall and represents the style change of the era. It is characterized by intricate geometric patterns which zig and zag across the face, the vase, framing a funeral scene. Now, of course, it's not all, at all surprising that researchers would assume that the artist was a man. In earlier Greek, in earlier Greek eras, uh, especially during the classical period, women were decidedly second-class citizens with Aristotle noting in his politics from around 2,400 years ago that, quote, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the man ruler and the female subject. And so a new paper is challenging that this idea uh, actually continued into that Iron Age. No one has really thought that women were involved in making this pottery, says Sarah Murray, a classical archaeologist at the University of Toronto. There was no argument. It was just taken as the default. And so publishing in the American Journal of Archaeology, Murray and two of her undergraduate students are challenging this acknowledged wisdom. They argue that the distinct pottery of this age is more likely to have been produced by women. And so this period encompasses the proto-geometric and geometric periods of pottery and spans from around 1050 BCE to 700 BCE. So this is later in time than that classical uh, Bronze Age civilization. And so for it's notable for, among other things, for being, unfortunately, completely devoid of surviving written records, um, which is really interesting to me. Pottery is the anchor of everything we say about the society, but I think that's problematic, Murray's notes. And so she says that scholars have just assumed the male nature of the potter due to earlier domination of men in the public sphere. However, Murray and her students argued that this distinct period marked by a drop in population may have followed the path of other civilizations which have this happen where they end up with more land than people. In this sort of a situation, women tend to be the chief producers of pottery. And so they also point to the abrupt change in style and the depictions of artwork of activities on these artworks. And so in the classical period, you have that very distinctive black on orange ware that is mostly depicting the gods and warfare and 
sport and things like that. And so we here you're seeing things like funerals and other things that are more considered to be the sphere of the sphere of women. Um, and so it makes a compelling argument. The paper also suggests a connection between the geometric patterns and weaving. The fact that the style seems to be inspired by textiles is kind of like the big blaring horn, she says. Women are almost always the weavers. And again, another clue is the funeral scene. One thing that has been clear for most of Greek history, funerals are the purview of women. They prepared the bodies, led processions, and were employed even as professional mourners. And that actually lasted until very recently in time, this idea of professional mourners in Greece. And so women and children's graves from the period also include much more pottery than those of men. And so building on all of these different threads of evidence, the paper makes the case for women potters in this era. By itself, I don't think certain evidence would be a slam dunk case, says Julie Herby, a classicist at Dartmouth College. But I think when you put all of these together, you get a much stronger case. Herby is working on using fingerprints to better identify the potters. There is a belief that the depth and density of finger ridges can be associated with specific ages and sexes. And while all of this is fascinating, Murray wants to make sure that the real takeaway from her paper is that we have interpreted the past based on our ideas of how we believe men and women should and do act without being open to the fact that they may have shifted their societal roles over the years. So it doesn't mean that just because men were probably potters in the classical period doesn't therefore follow that it has to have been men throughout time ever since that point. Um, or that you can pick a point later in time and then uh, project it back in time. And so you have to be looking at each individual moment on its own merits. And of course, if they're very similar, you can make inferences. But when you have something like this that is so different, the idea that you just would assume, oh, well, it was clearly men doing something different, that's problematic. Um, and that's something that she really wants to make sure people are thinking about. John Katner, an anthropologist at the University of North Florida, recently was a part of a study that showed that despite the assumption that women were the primary potters in Puebloan society, fingerprint analysis suggests that both men and women created pottery. It's pretty clear when you look at all of these cases from around the world, there is no intrinsically gendered activity, Katner says. And in fact, ceramics expert Kent Fowler, an anthropologist at the University of Manitoba, notes, gender is not binary now and is not binary in the past either. Now, to his credit, he's not 100% convinced by Murray's connection to weaving as he 
but he appreciates her open-minded approach to the data, which he as well hopes will become the norm, not the exception. And so, of course, we have always struggled with this idea of um, applying our ideas and our mores to um, things that are in the past because that's just how human nature is. But we really need to work against that and we really need to work on the idea that just because something was one way at one point doesn't necessarily mean it was the same way at a later point. Um, In fact, that's just kind of lazy research. (laughs) If nothing else, it's just lazy research. Um, And so I think it's really important for us to be concerned about that and to really try and push against that. Okay, so let us now move on and talk about a really interesting new algorithm that has been created to find hidden connections between works of art. These connections are not necessarily conscious, with paintings by artists who have never met or even corresponded having eerie similarities of composition. And so a group of researchers from MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, or CSAIL, and Microsoft created a program called Mosaic, uh, spelled M-O-S, capital (laughs) A-I-C, that compares works from the Metropolitan Museum of Art and and Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum, which is basically the equivalent in Amsterdam. And so they were inspired by a special exhibit at the Rijksmuseum entitled Rembrandt and Velasquez, And so two paintings from this exhibit spurred the creation of the program. Francisco de Zerbaran's The Martyrdom of St. Serapion and Jan Esselingen's The Threatened Swan. And so in the martyrdom, the saint is painted attached to an X-shaped cross with his head resting on his right shoulder and clothed in cream-colored robes. In the swan, a large mute swan spreads its wings with its head pointed toward the right over its wing. And so um, it's actually, the swan is supposedly uh, protecting its uh, nest from a dog. And so they look very similar in this composition if you really kind of look at it from a, uh, a compositional standpoint rather than just a straight visual. Um, Even the visual is pretty striking. These two artists did not have a correspondence or meet each other during their lives, yet their paintings hinted at a rich, latent structure that underlies both of their works, said CSAIL PhD student Mark Hamilton, the lead author, on a paper about Mosaic. The program finds analogous works from different cultures, artists, and media using deep networks to quantify how similar two works of art are. Image retrieval systems let users find images that are semantically similar to a query image, serving as the backbone of reversed image search engines and many product recommendation engines, says Hamilton. Restricting an image retrieval system to particular subsets of images can yield new insights into relationships in the visual world. We aim to encourage a new level of engagement with creative artifacts. Now, Google's 
X degrees of separation is a similar program that already exists, but it, find, it finds paths of arts that connect two works of art. Mosaic differs because it only requires one picture, which it then compares to a database to look at similarities in color, style, and importantly, meaning and theme. So therefore, dogs should be closer to dogs and cats closer to cats, for instance. And also, um, if you put in something that, say, is blue and white, it might come back with uh, things such as uh, Delft wear. And um, so it's that sort of activation. And in fact, the way that this works, in order to produce the effect, they probe a deep network's inner, what they call activations, uh, for each image in the open access collection of the two museums. And so the distance between these activations, which are actually uh, usually called features of the work, are used to judge similarities. So the color, the composition, those sorts of things are features, which they call activations. And so in order to extend the algorithm to different cultural works, the team created a new image search function called a conditional KNN tree, which groups similar images together in a tree-like structure. In order to find close matches, the program starts at the tree's trunk, so to speak, and follows the most prominent branches until the closest match is found. It's also able to learn, so it has a function where the tree can be pruned to a particular culture, artist, or collection to make it easier to retrieve future queries. And so an interesting offshoot of the program is that it can actually be applied to help find problems with existing deep networks that are related to the emergence of what are, have been called deep fakes, or altered images that fool the human eye. The data structure can be applied to find areas where probabilistic methods, models such as generative adversarial networks or GANs, which are used to create these images, break down. The researchers call these areas blind spots and show us how GANs can be biased and struggle to represent particular areas of a data set that can be detected by machine learning, if not by the human eye. And so the team further tested Mosaic by giving it two data sets. One challenged the program to find images with the same content, even after the images had been stylized by another program. The second asked the program to find English letters across different fonts. The pro excuse me, the program chose correctly just under two thirds of the time in a single guess from a pool of 5,000 images. Going forward, we hope this work inspires others to think about how tools from information retrieval can help other fields like the arts, humanities, social sciences, and medicine, says Hamilton. These fields are rich with information that has never been processed with these techniques and can be a source for great inspiration for both computer scientists and domain experts. This work can be expanded in terms of new data sets, new types of queries, and new ways to understand the connections between works. And so I think that's really, really cool because, um, you know, there is this interesting idea of how you could have two works that are completely disparate in time and culture, but 
still share very clear um, connections. And so that might be pointing to some sort of deep way that humans uh, view the world. It might be connected to a way that different cultures are similar in their um, cultural um, milieu. I mean, it could be, there could be a lot of different things that could have led to these. And so the more that we can look at these things, you know, social scientists might be able to look at these and see things. And also, like they're saying, there's a ton of other data out there. So this is kind of, um, you know, it's cool in and of itself, but it's also really cool for how it can be expanded to other data sets that have nothing to do with art in order to continue to allow people to find these connections that it would be really hard for a single person or even a group of people to find, whereas a machine can go through, you know, millions of pieces of data in a very short time and be able to find these deep connections. And so I think that's so cool. Um, and yeah, I think it's just really exciting to be able to see that. All right. So let us move on now and talk about a, uh, we're going to shift now to a bit about actually human cognition. <laughs> and so a new paper describes the fascinating case of a man who can, who could read letters and words, but not numbers. The man, referred to as RFS, didn't always struggle with this deficit. So the man, now in his late 60s, began to experience headaches, amnesia, tremors, and difficulty walking in October of 2010. He was eventually diagnosed, unfortunately, with a disease called corticobasal syndrome, which kills brain cells. Numbers gradually began to flip or to look confused to him until at the time of the research, he could not see traditional numbers at all. And so um, he actually had to teach his computer to display them differently so that he could continue with his work as an engineering geologist. So of course, numbers were very important to him. So this was very hard for him to deal with. Uh, numbers, when he tried to look at them in traditional ways, looked like a spaghetti of unconnected lines. And so in one experiment, researchers handed the man a large green foam eight and asked him what he saw. This is too strange for words, he notes. When he turned the foam number 90 degrees, it resolved into something that looked to him like a mask. When he moved it back and forth, he, you can actually watch him moving it back and forth in a video um, and see as he struggles with it because it basically moved in and out of coherence. Finally, he handed it to a scientist and said, you got to take that away. And so it was just a real struggle for him. Um, and it was really it was really amazing that he was willing to work with scientists um, while this was happening. And so um, it was really interesting because, as I noted, he trained his computer to display numbers differently so he could do his work still, which meant that he could still do math in his head without issue, but couldn't do things, simple things like read a speed limit sign or a price tag. Another interesting part of it was that he could still recognize zero and one. 
The researchers posit this may be because they resemble letters or because they have a deeper meaning that is tied to a different center in the brain. What it tells me, says Christoph Koch, a, re a neuroscientist at the Allen Institute who specializes in consciousness, is that you can get disassociation between cognition and consciousness, which is really interesting. And so in 2011, RFS met with a team of neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins University, led by Michael McCloskey and his then graduate students, Teresa Schubert and David Rothlein. The team was the one who gave RFS that foam number. They think that the reason it didn't help might be that the brain prioritizes sight over other sentences, over other senses. He could feel the curves, but still couldn't make his eyes see them. Schubert, now at Harvard, notes that he understood that he could contribute to scientific knowledge and he was willing to put up with the testing, but it was not pleasant. So it's really wonderful that he was able to do that. The research showed that his inability was not simply a visual is issue. He could see the eight and other orientations. It was, rather, that certain interpretations of the idea of eight had been lost to his brain. The fact that letters were not affected supports the idea that numbers are stored in a separate part of the brain, with the ability to use such numbers in more complex ways in yet another area, as again, RFS was still able to do math as long as the rep representations of the numbers were different. Interestingly, this may give us information about how consciousness is formed. Using an EEG, another test showed RFS large pictures of letters and numbers with tiny faces embedded in them. When looking at the letters, he reported seeing both the letters themselves and the tiny faces. And indeed, the EEG showed a telltale spike in N170 brainwaves, which are associated with seeing faces. However, when shown numbers with faces, he reported seeing neither, even though the EEG still showed a spike in N170 brainwaves. This suggests that his brain was still able to process high-level cognit cognitive ideas separate from consciousness. Now, unfortunately, FRS's health has deteriorated lately, and so he is no longer able to aid the researchers. But his participation was a valuable boon to them, and he should definitely, definitely be commended. Okay, let's move on now to talk about a story that involves both visualization and detection. Researchers from the Institute for Space Research at the Austrian Academy of Sciences publishing in Nature Communications report on a technique that uses lasers to measure the position of space debris in daylight. So basically, they are using LIDAR, but in space. <laughs> Previous to this, such debris was only visible during twilight as the bits of debris were illuminated by the slanting rays of the sun. This meant that there was a small window to assess these potentially dangerous pieces of space trash. Now, space debris can obviously be dangerous to satellites and to any other human-made objects in space, or frankly, humans in space when they're on spacewalks and things like that. And therefore, it's imperative that we find ways to keep track of the ever-growing threat. 
Currently, there are around 34,000 objects larger than 3.9 inches in Earth orbit, with millions of smaller objects. So basically, it's bits of spaceships and satellites, paint, chipped off, rocket parts of rocket stages, and all other manner of lost or discarded items, probably even occasional tools lost by uh, astronauts as they're fixing things. You know, you let go of something at the wrong moment, and it has enough momentum that it gets away from you, and that it's just orbiting. And so, again, most of these objects have the potential to damage delicate delicate satellites and crafts because, frankly, they can reach up to six miles per second in acceleration because that's the whole point of orbiting is that you're falling at a constant rate, but that constant rate can be very fast. Um, And so if it hits something that is not going at that same rate in order to keep away from it, that can be catastrophic. We are used to the idea that you can only see stars at night, and this has similarly been true for observing debris with telescopes, except with a much smaller time window to observe low-orbit objects, exclaims Tim Florer, head of ESA's Space Debris Office. In an ESA press release, Using this new technique, it will become possible to track previously invisible objects that had been lurking in the blue skies, which means we can work all day with laser ranging to support collision avoidance. And so traditionally, radar has been used to track objects larger than 3.9 inches, but not even very well, according to the Institute for Space Research. Lasers, however, can track these objects more precisely with around a meter's accuracy. And so the new technique uses a combination of telescopes, light deflectors, and filters to track light at specific wavelengths. This allows them to detect objects even in a bright blue sky. In testing, they were able to measure the distance to 40 different objects for the first time. We expect that these results will significantly increase debris observation over time, sorry, increase debris observation times in the near future, said Michael Steindorfer from the Austrian Academy of Sciences in the ESA press release. Ultimately, it means we will get to know the debris population better, allowing us to better protect Europe's space infrastructure. And obviously, if it's a proof of concept, we could adopt it as well. Now, wide-scale implementation of the new method would require multiple ground stations located across the globe, but it may well be worth it. And, of course, they also note that it would be a great idea (laughs) if we could develop policies that are meant to reduce the amount of debris being deposited in orbit in the first place. Wildly, despite the risk to everyone's orbiters, satellites, everything that they put into space, we don't actually have such parameters right now. We don't have any kind of treaties or rules about space debris, which is why there's so much of it up there. (laughs) Okay, let us wrap up tonight with a um, another sort of materials science um, story that will potentially help create more energy-efficient computer memory devices for doing all of this research that we've been talking about. (laughs) And, you know, potentially at some point for our use as well. Uh, 
In a new study published in Science Advances, researchers and engineers from the University of Minnesota have electronically transformed the abundant and low-cost non-magnetic material pyrite, or iron sulfide, into a magnetic material. This is a first for researchers to be able to transform a truly non-magnetic material into a magnetic one. Most people knowledgeable in magnetism would probably say it was impossible to electrically transform a non-magnetic material into a magnetic one. When we looked a little deeper, however, we saw a potential route and made it happen, said Chris Lighton, the lead researcher on the study and a University of Minnesota distinguished McKnight University professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Material Science. That's quite the mouthful. <laughs> Layton and his colleagues, including Ray Adil at New York University and Laura Gagliardi, a chemist at the University of Minnesota, have been researching the properties of iron sulfide, or fool's gold, uh, for more than 10 years as a possible component for solar cells. And so it turns out that sulfur is an abundant and cheap byproduct of petroleum refinement. And so they were hoping that they could use that to make it efficient enough for their purposes to then use in uh, solar arrays. But they, they were never really able to get there. We really went back to the iron sulfide material to try and figure out the fundamental roadblocks to cheap, non-toxic solar cells, Lighton said. Meanwhile, my group was also working in the emerging field of magnetoionics, where we tried to use electrical voltages to control magnetic properties of materials for potential, for potential applications in magnetic data storage devices. At some point, we realized we should be combining these two researchers, and it paid off. Leighton explains that the goal was to manipulate the magnetic properties of the material using only voltage, with little electrical current to create an energy-efficient substance. Researchers had previously turned on and off ferromagnetism in types of magnetic materials, but had never been able to induce ferromagnetism in a non-magnetic material until now. And so they basically used a process that involved uh, electricity and Gatorade. <laughs> And so um, they were able to do this and um, they were able to apply voltage and essentially pour electrons into the material. It turns out that if you get high enough concentrations of electrons, the materials will want to so spontaneously become ferromagnetic, which we were able to understand with theory. This has lots of potential. Having done it with iron sulfide, we guess we can do it with other materials as well. So that is very exciting. So that is absolutely all the time we have for tonight. So do stay tuned. Uh, and this has been Evidence-Based Radio. Thanks. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.